Acts chapter 9. We are in the week two of looking at um, Saul's conversions. If you missed last week, we did like most of the uh, Jesus interrupting him on the Damascus road. Uh, and this week we're going to talk about the, like the early um, days, months and years of his, of his conversion uh, and his new life as a Christian. So uh, what I want us to do is read for Acts chapter 9 from verse 19 to 31 and then uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to dive into um, seeing some things that I think God wants us to see and be encouraged by this morning. Acts 9 from uh, verse 19 uh, through 31. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot, so they were watching the gates day and night intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the, that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with him in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Let's pray together. Father, again, as we come um, to your word this morning, we, we pause as we do every week and we ask that you would still our hearts and our minds, our spirits. We always find ourselves arriving at this point on a Sunday, having come from such different weeks, so many different things going on in our lives, even today. Our, our walk with you in so many different places, and yet collectively, always still all needing to meet with you and to hear from you. And so we ask again that you would teach us. We thank you for your faithfulness in sending the Holy Spirit to be our teacher week after week, day after day, to open up our eyes, to see things, to soften our hearts that we may receive from you, uh, unblock our heart and of hearing ears, that we would hear the voice of our Father, the living God who loves us. We thank you that you use your word week by week to shape us and to encourage us. And no matter where we are this morning, no matter what's going on, your word is living and active and you send it out to accomplish its work. And so we, we say joyfully, Father, would you speak to us, and would your work do its work in our lives this morning? We long to leave this place knowing we've met with you, we've heard uh, you, you've encouraged us, challenged us, strengthened us, 
and shaped us through your word. And so we look to you now for the work that only you can do. We ask it in Jesus' name. All right. What did, what did Paul learn as a new believer? That's what I want us to look at this morning. What did Paul learn as a new believer? It's strange to think of Paul as a brand new believer. Um, and I want to say, I want to provide a few caveats quickly before we get into um, some of the things that I think he learned, that Paul's conversion experience isn't, isn't normal. I mean, I mean, it's been sort of saying like the sky's blue. Paul was on the road to Damascus armed with papers, wanting to wipe out Christians, and Jesus appears to him in a vision and a voice. And I think most Christians I know haven't had that kind of a conversion experience, like heading in that direction and then blinded for three days and like your whole life turns around and you go from being chief persecutor to chief evangelist, um, kind of that kind of 180 miraculous conversion. Um, his... I think I think there's a reason why his conversion was exceptional is because his calling was exceptional as well. So uh, there's one of these areas where you get to in the scriptures where some things are prescriptive in the scripture and some things are descriptive. You know, some things are just describing what happened, and other times the Bible's saying like, it's not, "This is not just what happened. This is what you should do. You should do the same things." And you shouldn't long for the same kind of conversion experience. We shouldn't think that just because we haven't had a conversion experience like Paul, yours is and not sufficient or second class, whatever. Um, it's just, it's just different. Um, and so we're going to look at some things that I think branch out and cover everyone's conversion experience, not just Paul's because his is exceptional, not just in the scriptures, but in church history. Um, one thing I just want to say before we get in, because it doesn't really fit into the other points is that, uh, banking it somewhere i don't know if you're a note taker this is kind of like put it in its own column or something like we need to be very careful how we treat um new believers and new converts um particularly in the age that we find ourselves now of online a global kind of community uh, and it particularly falls in the space of famous people i was really alerted to this as we read this like i there are some famous i'm not going to drop any names because I don't know many of them. I know only of a couple famous people who like profess faith in Jesus, say they've had this epiphany or whatever else or whatever. And then like the kind of the Christian world are like happy to like throw them in front of the whole world and say like, they've become a Christian. This is amazing. And they're all over Instagram or whatever else kind of thing. And then a few months later, or even maybe weeks later or a couple of years, depending on the person, like they are gone, you know? And everyone was looking to them saying like, hey, this person became a Christian. We need to be super slow and careful with people who come to faith, particularly if they are in public spaces. And you need to just be careful, especially if you're a young person, that you don't like be like, oh, you know, this person is a Christian. Let's just, hey, you know, like, hey, you became a Christian last week. What do you think of, you know, and we put a microphone in front of their face. They've been a, a, I wrote it down in my notes for myself. They are mature in the world and they are babies in Jesus. Mature in the world, babies in Jesus. Don't ask them what they think about scripture, scripture, and um, spiritual things, Christianity. They are babies. You don't go to a baby for life advice. You don't ask your children, what do you think I should do? They don't know. You tell them what they should do. Ne? Yeah. So don't go to people who are babies in Christ. They may be mature in the world. They're seasoned. They're in that, but it's different. 
Are you with me? I just want to bank that, that we need to be very careful trumpeting these and putting pressure on people who come to faith in Christ for exceeding levels of maturity in a short space of time. I know, I know no one really who has developed sustained Christian maturity quickly. It's just not how God works. It's not how God works. The, some of the wisest people in this room have walk, walked with God the longest. Some of them have gray hair. Some of them don't. But you can't fast track spiritual maturity. It just doesn't happen. It's a train wreck when you try and do that and when we push people to that. All right, rant over. Let's have a look at Paul. What did Paul learn as a believer, as a new believer? The th three things. First thing he learned about suffering. First thing is he learned about suffering. Suffering was going to be a big part of Paul's life. God told him that. God showed him that. We don't know the details. Don't know the intricate details. There's lots of holes and gaps in Paul's story and what happened to him. And I don't want to read into stuff and just make stuff up. That wouldn't be helpful. But when you look back in chapter 9 and verse 16, we looked at it last week. Um, God says to Ananias, ah, verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I'm going to show Paul how much he is going to have to suffer for the name of Jesus. I don't know what that meant. What did he show him? In like a video reel, made a give it, gave him a sense, told him stuff. We don't know. We don't know. But he, he knew he was going to suffer. Well, why did God allow Paul to suffer so much? I, I don't know. But I don't know um, conclusively, but I think it's some of these things. I think Paul needed humbling. And there's only one thing that will fast track your humility. Well, there's nothing that will fast track your humility like suffering. Paul thought he was it. We looked at it last week. Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, studied, studied under Gamaliel, knows the law, righteous Pharisee, whatever else. Paul needed a good dose of humbling before God could use him effectively in the church. You're wandering in there with all his swagger. I'm Paul. God's like, Laka, listen, take a seat there. We're going to sort things out for a few years. It's going to take some time. And you'll see now, it took a long time. God has to humble him. And I think suffering was an ongoing part of Paul's life all the way through just to keep him humble. Because God can only use humble people. Proud people are wrapped up in themselves. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. God uses suffering to humble his people and keep him dependent on God. This is what you see in Paul all the way through his letters. This deep dependency on God and, and on the spirit, on intimacy with God. Where does that come from? Proud people who think you've got it all together, who don't need God, they don't pray. There's no prayer, there's no power. There's no presence of the spirit. You become useless and unfruitful. Dependent people pray. There is the presence of the Spirit. There is the power. There is the fruit. That's what you see in Paul. God just kept him in a place of suffering all the way through his life. He taught him about suffering because he was going to face massive opposition. He was leading the gospel out into the gentle, in, into the Gentile world. Some people loved him. And we'll look at this as we go through Acts. Pretty much, this is the summary of Paul's life. Everywhere he goes, he preaches the gospel, starts a riot, and gets chased out of the place. Causes a ruckus for Jesus, gets stoned, beaten, flogged, whatnot, and run out of town. And leaves behind what? A church. That's the summary of Paul's life in some ways. An overly simplistic summary. 
why else did God allow Paul to suffer? I think one of the main reasons is to show off God's strength in weakness. To show off God's strength in weakness. Read with me um, how Paul describes his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 24. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Let's just stop with that verse quickly. Five times he received 39 lashes. Mark Driscoll said years ago, many Christians don't even want to suffer a paper cut for Jesus. I'm not sure if I would have continued past five lashes. You know, when I got jacks in school, like I, I, I have a low pain threshold. You know, they don't jack kids in school anymore. You get arrested for doing that kind of stuff. I don't like getting whacked. I've never liked any kind of pain. I'm not sure that most believers would follow through. Five times, 30, the 39 lashes left you close to death. It wasn't a game. Five times he endured, he endured that. Verse 25, three times he was beaten with rods. We assume this is separate occasions. Once I received a stoning and not the kind, you know, the one with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I'd face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers amongst, amongst false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. This is a guy who knew a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering. We're going to look a bit later at the sufficiency of God's grace for us, but I want to connect this because some of us read that and you think, wow, I mean, he had a rough time. You know, I've had it easy. You know, maybe there's some difficult things in my life, but I just want to say this, that Suffering is normal Christianity. Suffering is normal for Christians. There's this weird kind of alternative gospel out there, the kind of your best life now nonsense, where it's like you come to Jesus and he's like the celestial genie who fixes all your problems and makes your life lacquer. Now, and it just gets better, and then we're in heaven, and it's just exceptional then. And then you read your Bible and you realize that that is not true. It's never been promised. The only thing that's been promised is the exact opposite of that gospel. By Jesus himself, in John 16, verse 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. Again and again, Jesus says, look, the serpent isn't about the master. If they persecuted me, they're going to come for you. You're not greater than me. What they did to me, they're going to do to you. If you have suffered in any way for your faithfulness to Jesus, it's perfectly normal. I would almost go a bit further, carefully, to say, if you haven't suffered at all for your faith in Jesus, maybe you're not following closely enough. 
because the Bible promises that you're going to suffer if you follow faithfully with Jesus. There's going to be things that you run into. We're going to have a look at some of them. Where does the suffering come from? We're going to get back to Paul in a second. Where does the suffering for you come from? The world, the flesh, and the devil, and the church. Where there's a long list of other things, I'm just going to highlight those ones quickly now. The world. The world is a system set up against God. It is an anti-God system. It's systems, structures, under the control of Satan and his demons, is actively conspired. And the, that, that, that spiritual sense, but the world is also broken and fallen. We are not in the world as God intended, in the Garden of Eden. We are living under fallen conditions here. So people will get sick and they will die. And you will lose your job and you will struggle financially. Your health will fail. Your family will fall apart. And people will do things and betray you. And this world is not the perfect place and God has not promised to fix everything now. He has promised to fix everything, but not now. That time is coming. We're in the, the start, the birth pains of what is the full reconciliation that's coming, but he doesn't promise to fix it all now. We live in a fallen world and a world that opposes the faithful followers of Jesus. You're going to find trouble there. You're going to find trouble with your own flesh. Paul wrote this. You can go and read it. We don't have time this morning to go into, into depth. Go and read Romans chapter 7. This is what Paul says. He says that the good things that I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things that I don't want to do, I end up doing those things. What is going on in me? He says there's basically a war going on inside of him between the new man in him and his old man, between unredeemed Paul and redeemed Paul. And it's a, it's a battle that continues until you meet Jesus. And yes, there's a lot of grace from God. There's a lot of help in the power of the Spirit to overcome and to make progress. But he is very acutely aware of that battle. Guys, here, I don't have to, I don't have to, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not selling, in, uh, selling, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. You struggle within yourself with desires that you wish that you didn't have to. Sin, thoughts, stuff that's in you that you think, where on earth did that come from? That's your flesh is fighting progress in um, your faith. And you're going to, you're going to struggle. That would be your situation until Jesus either comes or calls for you. You will have a struggle with your flesh and you need the help and the power of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis to win those battles. And it's going to be suffering. If you want to make progress, you're going to suffer to make progress. Satan actively opposes Christians. Just go read it in 1 Peter. He's roaring. He's like a lion looking to devour Christians. He's looking to take you out. I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to open your eyes to the reality. We are in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle. It's real. Most Christians in this part of the world are completely oblivious to it. Just skip through life or whatever. We're in a spiritual battle. If the devil can convince you, if Satan can convince you that he doesn't exist, that there's no battle, you would largely probably become useless. You need to wake up and open your eyes to the battle, but there is a battle and it will cause suffering and struggle going to cause suffering and struggle. The last one I'll touch on here is the church. Many people experience suffering and struggle at the hands of the church. It's just a reality. I'm not talking about our church, although we are a church, and so it's 
very likely that happens in this church. Some of you are in this church because of another church. You just need to be a part of a church for long enough and, and, and Christians or the church will hurt you and cause some of your struggle as some of your suffering. This is how it is. And I can't fix it for you and I'm not going to whitewash it for you. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe you're thinking, that's why I'm not a Christian. Yeah. Well, it's worse to be outside a dysfunctional family than inside this dysfunctional but wonderful family, I would say. Come and join us. Bring your dysfunction with Paul arrives in Jerusalem. Where did I get this from? Paul arrives in Jerusalem after three years. Now, he's a three-year-old convert. We'll get to it now. He's been a Christian for three years. He's been in the desert in Arabia. He's been in Damascus. He's been preaching, doing the stuff. He arrives in Jerusalem. He hasn't been to Jerusalem yet. Since, remember the last time he left Jerusalem? He left with the papers going to Damascus to go and try to wipe out the Christians. Three years later, he goes back. Now, he's a Christian. And the church threw him a welcome party. No, no, it doesn't know what it says. It says that they didn't believe he was a disciple. They wanted nothing to do with him. They were like, listen, but <laughs> we are not so convinced. You've been on for three years, you know. Just you wreaked havoc the last time you were here. You approved the stoning of Stephen. That was like your farewell thing. You assisted in the murder of one of our deacons one of our early church leaders, and now you're back and you want to just join in. doesn't work like that, but doesn't work like that. Churches, let me say this. I'm a pastor. I love the church. I will always be part of it. Churches can be some of the most graceless places on planet Earth. And if that, if you're aiming to, amening to that, please amen even stronger that you would pray that this church would be a grace-giving community, that by God's help, we would be a place that doesn't matter what you've done or what you're doing, if you want in here, we will show you grace. We will show you grace. You don't have to get your act together before you join this. You can come with all of your crap and bring it in here and you will be loved and welcomed and accepted and God will go to work on you. But we will love you. We're not going to chuck you out. And we're not going to second guess whether or not you're a Christian. We're not going to be like, I'm not sure you're a disciple. We're just going to love you and see. And God will show. And time will tell whether you're truly following Jesus as it did with Paul. The church can both hurt you and the church can help you. So what happens? All the disciples are like, we're not sure. Mm, we don't want anything to do with you. But there's one dude who's part of the church. What does he do? Barnabas. He goes and he says, come here, Jonah. Come with me. Barnabas wanders in and he says, listen, this is all legit. Barnabas, a great risk and reputation. Risk of his own reputation, maybe risk to himself. He's like, no, this all happened. I promise you I'm legit. I'm vouching for this guy. And he opens up the doors. He facilitates the introductions. He's the buffer. We see this when you read Acts. We did this earlier in Acts. Barnabas is just stellar throughout Acts. He's, we need a million Barnabases in every church. Because the church will hurt you. The church will cause suffering in your life. My only encouragement and plea, pleading to you this morning is not to walk away. Don't walk away when the church hurts you. Run to Jesus and lean harder into the church. I'm not talking about dysfunctional, abusive churches where it's all just jacked up. I think by God's grace, we don't have one of those. But Christians and the church will hurt you. doesn't give you an excuse to sulk with Jesus and the church and run away. You'll be more hurt doing that. How do I know that? Because God's grace is sufficient. 
Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 from verse 8. He's talking about this thorn in his flesh, this kind of predicament that he had all the way through his life that God never really seemed to answer his prayers. It says from verse 8, Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore I will boast, therefore I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, saying that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When you're weak, then you're strong. God's grace is sufficient for you in the midst of all of those things. You're struggling with the world's opposition against you. You're struggling with family. You've got daggers out for you because you're trying to faithfully follow Jesus. Spouse giving you a hard time. Kids giving you a hard time. Colleagues giving you a hard time. You're struggling with your own flesh, sin struggles. Satan keep bashing your life, battering you. Don't want to come to church because you've had so many fallouts with people and disappointments. God's grace is sufficient for you. Because in the midst of weakness, that's where you find strength. When you start walking with swagger as a believer, that's when you lose any strength. That's why God kept humbling Paul. He wanted Paul walking with a limp, not with a swagger. He wanted him limping through life, not swaggering. He's like, I'm Paul. I'm, I know the Bible better than everyone else. I had to practice that walk at home. I almost put my hip out, sir. No, I didn't practice walking around the house like that, but yoke's mad. It, it, imagine him, Paul. I know the scripture better than anyone else. Whatever. The, the church would have gone nowhere. God had to injure him, wound him, and humble him in order to use him. That's how God works. That's how God works. You want, a, you want God to use you, that's what you're signing up for. Wounding, humbling, suffering because it's there where it becomes clear that God's grace is on your life and it's his strength in the midst of your weakness not your strength in the midst of everybody else's weakness then the spotlight's on you that's not what God wants God wants a spotlight on him not on you it's his power it's his strength that we're looking at not ours okay I need to go faster that's the first thing what was the first thing? suffering he learned about suffering. Second thing he learned about preaching. It says in verse 20, Saul's with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. Verse 22, it says he grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I thought about this a lot on this point. Not all of these points are the same length. Don't worry, we're not going to be here much longer. I was thinking he had the most radical conversion experience. He gets to Damascus, and then I think, I mean, it's not clear here, but if you read through other parts in Galatians where he talks about, he heads off into Arabia, which is basically the desert. And then he comes back to Damascus and, Damascus and he starts preaching. But I think in that, God is taking him into the desert for a while because it's a good place to go when God needs to humble you and get you alone with him before he wants to use you. He comes to Damascus, and he starts to preach. And what 
that we only have these two lines here in this text, and we only have a few others. What, what is the content of his message? He's talking about Jesus, and it says, verse 22, that he's confounding the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, that's the heart of his message. He's confounding them by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. How did he prove that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, he used the Old Testament to prove that Jesus who had come now is the Messiah. So he's using logic, he's using the scripture. He is not, I don't want to overcook this, but he's not running around with an exciting story. Leaning all of the weight and the hope of the expectation and the salvation of people on a story and experience that he had. Gather a crowd. Guys, you won't believe what happened. I was marching towards Damascus and then, wham, this light and then this voice and it was just amazing and all of this stuff. That's not the heart of his message. The heart of his message is that Jesus is who he says he is. And the heart of his message is based on the word, not on what he went through. He went through something where Jesus arrested him and convinced him that, yeah, I am the Son of God. I am Jesus. Don't stop persecuting me. But when he's preaching, he's proclaiming he is the Son of God. Not, you also want to see the blinding lights, guys. It's amazing. And I, I just want to say that when we're sharing our faith with others, we need to, we need to be very careful and clear. We need to be equipped so that we are able to articulate clearly the gospel. It's wonderful to layer our own story into the truths of the gospel. It's very powerful of how the truths of the gospel have come to bear on your own life. But our testimony can't just be like uh, a weight on experience. Like, I experienced this. No one can argue with my experience. It's my experience. It's like, it's lovely. It's your experience. But there is more. There is actual historical facts and there is a Jesus and let's shine the light on him not on ourselves when we're trying to convince people that Jesus is truly the Messiah the Son of God Paul's preaching comes with boldness it says again and again boldness 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 where does boldness come from do you remember in Acts where boldness comes from it comes from the Holy Spirit comes from the Holy Spirit. We see this again and again. The believers get together, they pray, they get filled with the Spirit, and they speak the Word of God with boldness. I want to say this again and again and again, as all the way through our, our series on the book of Acts. If you are a terrified Christian, if you struggle to ever articulate your faith in Jesus, what you need is boldness, and not, not just the courage that you wind up in yourself. You need a boldness that comes from the Holy Spirit being poured out in fresh ways over your life that gives you a compulsion and a courage to speak clearly and faithfully about Jesus. Paul knew this so intimately, not just then, but throughout his ministry. In 1 Corinthians, he writes this when he's writing to the Corinthians about his ministry with them. He says, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul, he knows the Scriptures better than anyone that he's preaching to. Better than the Corinthians, but how does he come to them? He says, 
weakness, fear, and much trembling. No swagger there. He's basically quaking in his boots as he's preaching to them. Every time he gets up to share a message, the guy just like, maybe if you looked at him, you'd be like, oh my gosh, Paul, get it together, bud. Poof. I've shared this story, I think, a couple of times before. I'll share it briefly now. Many years ago, I was in a Methodist church in um, Bedford View. I was part of the Youth of Christ team, and we went to an evening service there. And um, they had a replacement young preacher there that night. I don't know what happened to the regular oak, but there's a replacement oak there, and he got up there, and he spent the first five minutes apologizing for how nervous he was, how unprepared he was, that he was very excited, but this is all just a bit hectic for him and stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, it had been a long week. And I was just like, bro, would you please get on with it? Like enough with the apologies, literally like five minutes. And the Oak's voice is doing like, I thought this Oak's going to dissolve in tears any second. I was like, oh my gosh, like bro, get it together. I wanted to yell out like, just can somebody help this Oak? After about five minutes, one of the elders of the church leaders gets up and goes and stands next to this young chap. So puts his arm around him and says, let's just pray for old brother, whatever his name was, he just prays for this oak. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe this will work, you know, like just give the oak a sip of water, something stronger, just like settle the nerves and I just keep keep going, yeah, but like mercifully, this is probably beginning to be short because this oak looks like he's going to pass away from nervousness there. Anyway, the elder prays for him, goes to sit down. His voice kind of steadies a little bit, but not much. It's hard to listen to. The sermon is all over the place. Oaks, I mean, I know... You know, I preached some very average sermons, probably quite a few, but they were not as bad as this like sermon. I mean, Jesus, it was hard to follow. I think most of it was unbiblical, uh, reflecting now, at least theology, theology that I wouldn't 100% advocate. It was, as I said, mercifully quite short. He gets to the end, and I'm thinking, the only good thing about the sermon is that it's about to end. Then... I can see him now he's getting a bit of confidence. He starts to wind up for an altar call. And I'm thinking, oh, no. No, dude, this is not a good idea. Like, I mean, there's quite a few people here. And you're going to do an altar call after that sermon. I'm going to crush this boy. You know? Altar calls, I'm not even sure what I feel about them. Anyway, we all have to bow our heads and close our eyes. You know, no cheating. No, no one's looking around. This oak persists with the altar call there. I'm thinking, well, this won't take longer. I mean, no one's responding to the gospel after that sermon. The lip and bang average sermon. I promise you, I, I, I share that story now because God burnt it into my brain and my heart that night. The, I think half the church were in the front. It was, a, it was over a third of the church that had been invited there to hear the gospel responded. We spent three and a half hours counseling new converts New Christians, new disciples after that X message. Genuine Christians. People who'd become believers that night. We were the ministry team of a guys. I thought we were going home early. Three and a half hours later, we were still praying with people who weeping, weeping, genuinely come to faith in Jesus Christ after that sermon. I went home, I put my head on the pillow. I promised God never again will I scorn what you are doing in and through anyone. You can use that oak. To bring that many people to faith in Jesus Christ, God does whatever He wants through His humble instruments. Through weak, trembling, fearful preaching, God can breathe on it. Listen to me. You may not have your act together. Your life may be less perfect than you think. You may not have all the answers. But if you plead with God over and over again and you 
submit your life to the power of the Spirit, God will use you to lead other people to Jesus Christ. He will. It's not my job to do it. It's your job to do it. It's part of my, it's our job to do it. Let me put it like that. We all get to do it. We all get to do it. You're not disqualified because you don't have all the answers. He uses the weak and the fearful and the trembling. Don't need persuasive words. You need what? A demonstration of the Spirit's power. Okay, last one. He learns about preaching. He learns about trusting. I'll do, I'll do this one quickly. He learns to trust God very quickly. The guys go after him. His preaching is good. He's, he's confounding them. He says they don't have an answer for him. He's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. They're like, oh my gosh, he's causing a ruckus like he did everywhere. And they decide we need to get rid of this clown. And the word gets to Paul. It's like, listen, these guys are coming to get you. And so his disciples do him a favor and they lower him in a bucket out the wall and down he goes and runs away to Jerusalem. Gets to Jerusalem, frosty welcome. The timeline's like clear. You're just going to have to trust me that he spent three years there. You can read it in Galatians 1. Three years in Damascus, he goes to Jerusalem. Gets to Jerusalem. It's around about two weeks that he's in Jerusalem. He's preaching, already causing a ruckus. They start to oppose him. Word leaks. They're going to take you out again. The disciples reckon, okay, bro, long enough here. We're sending you home. He is Saul of Tarsus. They send him to Caesarea, get on a boat off back home to Tarsus. Spends how many years in Tarsus? He spends 14 years in Tarsus back home. Until Barnabas eventually goes to fetch him and brings him back to Antioch and they start ministry there. Why am I telling you all of this? Not because I'm a Bible nerd. I am, but it's important. It's 17 years, 17 years after he becomes a believer in Jesus that the wheels really start turning on the ministry of Paul. 14 of those years are in his hometown of Tarsus doing who knows what. We don't really know exactly. The Bible's not clear of what he was doing. But he's not in the limelight. He's not leading anything. He's not planting churches. He has been prepared. He's been prepared. God is never in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. God is not in a hurry in your life. There's two things in here. God is never in a hurry and God is never late. And I felt very impressed. This very impressed on my heart to remind you this morning that God is never late. Some of you are deeply frustrated with God. He is never late. He has never been late and he will never, ever be late. You think he should have got his act together in your life with X, Y, and Z. There's a reason why he hasn't allowed you to have this, do this, whatever. But God is never late. And God is not in a hurry. You might feel frustration. Look how long he takes with Paul. He needed to spend 14 years in the middle of nowhere doing who knows what to be ready for everything else that would come. You can't fast track these things. And it seems to be, it seems to be the pattern that God uses in Scripture, isn't it? Look at Moses. Moses is 40, and then what? Then he leaves Egypt for how long? Yeah, 40 years. 40 years, and then God calls him to go and spring the Israelites out of Egypt. 40 years. That's a long time, Oaks. Of like just the herding cattle and just minding your own business there kind of thing. 40 years is a long time of preparation. What about Joseph? God gives Joseph all these massive promises and dreams and visions. 
And what happens? He ends up in slavery. He ends up in jail. Forgotten. Then he rises up. Then he realizes, oh, our brothers meant this for harm, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. Later on, there's a reconciliation with his family. God isn't in a hurry. I'm always amazed that Jesus, it took 30 years for Jesus to start his ministry. You know, you're in your prime when you're in your late teens, your 20s. Being better. Jesus could have started a whole show when he was like 21. Be done with it. The 30 years of preparation. Even Jesus seems to take 30 years for three years. There's a lot of preparation that needed to happen even in the life of Jesus. God is not in a hurry. He is always on time. And Paul learns this. To trust God. To trust him for his safety. He has to trust him for his safety. Because Paul had watched other believers die. And it happens, you'll see it in the book of Acts. Not all the apostles make it through the book of Acts alive. They get whacked. He has to trust God. Hey, my days are numbered by you. I'm just going to do what you call me to do until you take me home. He learns to trust God. I want to press your buttons this morning. Do you trust him? Your days are numbered by him. Your calling is secure. It will come to pass in his time. You have to trust him and wait on him. You can't fast track these things. God is the sovereign. He doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. And he knows exactly what he's doing in your life. He is in perfect, meticulous control. And you get to rest and enjoy and lean into what he's doing in his, in his time and trust him. You can't bully him. You can't boss him around. You can pray, you can plead, you can ask, but ultimately God will do what he wants to do. Okay, that's enough for this morning. Let's pray together. Let him lead us as we pray and respond to what God has been saying to us this morning. As we come to as we come to pray and respond to what God has been saying to us this morning, I want to remind you what God said to Ananias when He sent him to Paul to pray for him. That He He told Ananias that Paul was God's chosen instrument, His chosen instrument. That's not just for Paul. That's for that's for everyone who follows Jesus. We didn't, Jesus says, we didn't choose him, but he chose us and appointed us to go and bear fruit. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you're God's chosen instrument. He has chosen you and has chosen everything that comes into your life. Not to punish you, not to cause you harm, but to cause you good, to cause your flourishing, to glorify himself in and through your life. It's chosen. It's a wonderful thing to be chosen by God. To be kept by Him. If you're not a believer here this morning, that's the, the truth of the matter is that God is calling you to Himself. That's the reason why you're here hearing these things is He's calling you. He wants you to place your faith in Him and respond to the, the tugging, the drawing, the nagging on your heart that you experience. Relentlessly, He is after you. 
Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people, to be a church that suffer well for the sake of the gospel. That in all the different areas of suffering, we would experience the promise that you have explicitly stated that your grace would be sufficient for us in our weakness. Your power would be made perfect. Friends, if you're here this morning and you find yourself just struggling and suffering and weighed down, I want us now just to take a moment, just to bring that to the Lord. Bring your own heart to me. He knows, he sees the struggle. He sees your suffering. His grace is sufficient. I want you to remind your own soul of that this morning, that God's grace is sufficient for you. It's never going to run out. It's never, ever going to run out. There is an abundance in God that we can never exhaust. He has grace that is sufficient for you. He will carry you. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will lead you. He will heal you. His grace is sufficient. Well, that you would put as well a boldness in our spirits this morning to testify to you. Jesus is the true Messiah, the Son of God. Give us a brokenness for those who don't know you. And help us to trust you with our lives. We humble ourselves in your presence this morning again. We want to remind ourselves, Father, that if we could plan out our lives, we would make a mess of it. We don't have the best plan for our lives. You do, because you're our perfect Father, and you know us, and you know what we need. I pray that you would help us again to put our confidence and our trust in you again, that we are held in your hands. The lives are not out of control. It's not meaningless to our suffering. It's not purposeless. There's purpose in our suffering. There's purpose in our struggle. We trust you again because you're good. You are good and what you do is good. We pray that you give us grace this morning to give you our yes again, to say, yeah, we will trust you. As difficult as it may be, as hard as it may be, we trust you. Because who else will we go to? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else holds our hands? Who else has dealt with our sin? Who else has given us life in his name? It's only you. And so we trust you and we love you. Our lives are yours again. King Jesus. 